Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, a European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Detma During. Dr. During is the head of the Friedrich Naumann Foundation office in Prague for Central Europe and the Baltic region. And we talk about economic freedom and how that freedom relates to others, and also how to create smarter regulations to improve opportunity and quality of life in society. I'm here with Dr. Detmar During. Dr. During, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. And before we talk about the main topic for our conversation today, which is economic freedom, I would like you to tell us a little bit about yourself. What was the path travel got you to the point where, we, where you are right now? Okay, my name is Detmar During, and I do work for the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom, which is a kind of civic education institution uh, that also operates worldwide and uh, is part of a network of like-minded institutions that try to promote the cause of freedom, free markets, rule of law, democracy, progress. And within that foundation, I used to be the head of the think tank section and today I work uh, in Prague, uh, run the Prague office, which is in charge of uh, projects all over Central Europe and the Baltic states, thereby supporting uh, liberal-minded forces, including a network of think tanks, many of which are active in the field of research on economic freedom and its consequences. So being part of a major network, international network that tries to promote economic freedom, free markets. So how did that decision came about? You're from Germany, of course. I imagine you did most of you, lived most of your life in Germany. How that decision came about to move to lovely Prague, I must add? Uh, Prague? That's simply something personal. Uh, I used to work within Germany, and then came the time when uh, my daughter left house in order to study at Tübingen University. And this was a chance to have a little bit of a change and to do something new. And uh, especially uh, in a region which uh, offers some challenges, I mean, with some countries drifting away from the liberal order, some being able to maintain their cause, like uh, Estonia, but yesterday we have seen that maybe Poland, and before that Hungary, are on a different course. And uh, I, I take that as a challenge. I mean, I come from a country which once used to have a free and a non-free uh, half, so to say, and uh, then you are aware of what the value of freedom is. That's a very, very interesting point. I'm going to stay here for a little more, and that is about the, a part of being free, the other not being free. How is your perception now exactly how things are moving in the central and eastern part of Europe? Uh, 
perhaps uh, some tendencies are more openly visible in some countries, not all of them. Czech Republic, for instance, I think is still a very uh, free country. And essentially, despite many uh, political turmoils, party political turmoils, uh, it's still very much uh, okay. But I think the uh, Central European countries are part of a general tendency that you see that uh, uh, freedoms on all fronts are uh, in a state of regression. You know, in the 80s, 90s, and the early 2000s, you still would say that uh, more and more countries are becoming free and freer, and with that, standard of living is improving, but in recent years you simply see that uh, it's going backwards uh, mm -hmm. with respect to freedom. And that's not only that's not only in the V4. That's, uh, I would say if you look at some uh, comparative measurements, it goes for the U.S. and several parts of the Western uh, of Western Europe. Uh, in most parts, it's, it's a, uh, something that really concerns even countries that seem to be slowly moving to a proper direction like China are now uh, heavily regressive. Now we're going to start focusing a little more in the reason why uh, you came to the podcast, and that is economic freedom. Can you start maybe by describing uh, this concept? Well, economic freedom is just a part of freedom in general. That is that humans can make their own decisions, shape their own lives, and uh, cooperate, cooperate with each other on a voluntary uh, basis without force and violence, unless it's to prevent force and violence. And uh, economic freedom is a part of that, just as much as is freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion. And uh, all these freedoms are usually very much intermingled. I mean, you cannot separate, for instance, uh, freedom of press from economic freedom. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to conceive the idea that, uh, let's say, the whole press is state-owned and should still be free. Uh, it's uh, ve at best a very, 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 very theoretical uh, possibility that this uh, would uh, uh, do. So economic freedom is essentially freedom, but in the field where people are interchanging some kinds of goods, material or immaterial, and can do so without being coerced. That's essentially economic freedom, so free exchange and uh, uh, not restricted unless it's absolutely legally necessary. And uh, uh, that also uh, there is no sort of uh, confiscation, also direct or indirectly. I mean, governments can confiscate, for instance, by uh, igniting uh, uh, galloping inflation, for instance, and people lose what they have earned uh, uh, with their labor. But it could also be all kind of regulation and uh, restriction on trade. And uh, there's certainly no country in the world where there's perfect economic freedom. There's no perfect freedom anywhere. But you can compare uh, 
countries and see whether it is on the whole something that is good for the people that makes people wealthier, happier, live in a better environment. That's a great uh, description of it and I'm going to focus a little more because you mentioned how they're intermingled these freedoms, freedom of expression, freedom of the press. One of them is uh, the rule of law and exactly as the beginning of our conversation we're talking about the situation in um, Central and Eastern Europe. Can you tell us a little more how one thing can generate the other and how can we see that happen especially in those countries where illiberal democracies are taking over now? Uh, that's a very good point because uh, economic freedom doesn't mean that there is absolutely no restriction. There's nothing that a government should do and rule of law is uh, one of the most important factors. As you may know in my uh, previous field, uh, uh, I worked on an index, international cooperative effort, it is to measure economic freedom, the index economic freedom of the world together with the Fraser Institute. Mm -hmm. And uh, within that project, we try to measure these with certain components, including size of government, uh, rule of law, uh, monetary policy, freedom to trade and regulate regulation. And uh, I try to imagine which one is the most important, which one has the biggest effect on, let's say, GDP uh, per capita. And it was essentially monetary policy and first of all, rule of law. Now you can have a lot of economic freedoms like low taxes and deregulation, but on the other hand, no real rule of law. And then maybe free markets turn to something that is kleptocracy. I would tend to say uh, Hungary is. Hungary, Hungary boasts, oh, we are a very free market, Mr. Orban. We have a kind of flat tax. It's not very high. And we have deregulated certain things. It's not as free as they boast. But on the whole, there are a lot of data that are pretty much OK. But uh, you see that the richest people in this country are invariably all connected to the leading party and uh, that there was a kind of secret process for instance of buying uh, newspapers and media private media suddenly all in the ownership of a certain clique and then you're beginning to see okay this is not what we think rule of law is rule of law of course means that it must guarantee that freedom means equal chances to enter the market. So, and if this isn't there, uh, other parts of economic freedom might even become dangerous. Although one has to say, even if they don't have these, it's still dangerous. Uh, without rule of law, I would tend to say, no economic system could really function properly, at least not properly in the sense that it uh, benefits uh, uh, the population in general. And you just mentioned that you developed that index and you did find some variables that explain uh, that association between GDP and economic freedom. Can you, can you describe some more of them? Like, for example, uh, how does the market function? We can start with that. Well, the market as such, if it is free within the boundaries of proper rule of law, uh, and civic freedom, 
uh, is simply something that unleashes creativity and is much more flexible to adapt to the demands and to the knowledge of individuals than any centrally planned economy can do. Uh, and it does not distort this. I mean, you can have a non-coercive, non-planned economy, but with a monetary system that distorts decisions. We have seen that with the financial crisis, where uh, simply the money market uh, was distorted by artificially low interest rates, by programs that promoted housing, even to people who shouldn't have get a, get a loan, suddenly did get yes. a loan. So the signals that pr uh, come along with prices were set out of function. And then you will suddenly see something very dysfunctional, uh, kind of artificial booms, which end up in a crash. And uh, there are a lot of ways how to dis dis make a market dysfunction uh, uh, if you intervene too much. You need certainly a governmental framework to do that. You need proper monetary policies. You uh, may even be able to have a, a, a certain state of social policies within it as long as it doesn't distort the labor market too much. And again, you need rule of law. Uh, but it's not wise to interfere in the wisdom that is behind this vast uh, coordinative mechanism that is uh, called market. But, but that is that is a, a very interesting point because one of the critiques that we see about the markets and the markets being regulated and will let them regulate themselves, the famous concept of the invisible and how much market can we have as a market? So what I mean by that is, uh, can, uh, can we go too far? And you just mentioned that the fact that we had economic crashes because we, we leave too much for the market to regulate itself. And you just mentioned, well, we can't distort it because there will be too much intervention from the whatever, a state, a government, the people. So how do you find that balance between those two things? Uh, well, first of thing, first of all, I think that you cannot escape markets. Even in a communist planned economy, even in North Korea, you have some sort of uh, economic interaction, uh, which then might involve simply uh, uh, political power as well. And you have black markets. Uh, you uh, trade, for instance, wealth for submission. If you submit yourself to the regime, you may get more privileged. If you don't, you may end up dismally. All that is market as well. Uh, so market is omnipresent. As long as there are people, they somehow interact and interchange. Uh, you Theoretically, you can have uh, perhaps uh, total under-regulation or so. I mean, if you have a complete breakdown of states, which you sometimes see in uh, countries torn by a civil war or countries with weak civil societies, weak states. Uh, uh, for some years, you had many examples in uh, sub-Saharan uh, Africa, of course. Uh, this is, these are, of course, not wealthy countries. It's the most terrible thing that 
can befall you. So you need some sort of uh, order around it. You do kind of things, and maintaining this, for instance, rule of law, uh, halfway sound monetary uh, policy is already quite an effort uh, to maintain property rights, uh, at least to organize a framework for education. Uh, one of the very few things where you do see an exception uh, uh, in the rule that economic freedom as such creates wealth is in a very uh, extremely religious country, socially very conservative religious country. They may not be restricted by heavy taxes. Uh, even government uh, doesn't intervene to property rights, but they don't grow. It's also a kind of attitude, a kind of maturity of civilization that comes into uh, place. All these are necessary preconditions. Uh, you might have a minimum regulation, but look at the financial crisis. That was usually seen as an example. Ah, you had the unfettered market. The capital market was totally unfettered, and that's why things went wrong. It was never unfettered. Mm -hmm. Capital markets were the most tightly regulated area. And I wouldn't say that it should be completely deregulated, but you may have over-complex regulation mm -hmm. that doesn't work anymore. Actually, in practice, you would see if there was uh, at any stage, I saw even in, in Germany, that if the capital market was to be regulated, usually in the ministries, they didn't have the expertise, know about all these financial products that are on the market, how to regulate it and what the consequences are. So they put in experts from the banks who knew then you have a problem, you may have something regulated, which doesn't solve the problems, but the banks are happy with. So the question is, you can regulate something. Uh, maybe uh, 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 banks uh, did not care about having enough reserves, uh, and that could be easily regulated. But on the whole, it's uh, simply the way uh, there has to be some sort of regulation, certainly it has, but uh, uh, that could be probably much more simple than we have, and you have to have the guarantee that it does not thwart uh, economic capacity. So we have a continuum from very little regulation to too much regulation, but somewhere in the middle there is a concept that you introduce in a paper you wrote about nonsensical regulation and how that is working against the European Union, developing a lot of eurocenticism. Can you tell us a little more about that? How, what is nonsensical uh, regulation and how can we avoid them? Okay, I mean, uh, one of the problems uh, the European Union faces is that you constantly see, you see a constant stream of reporting on regulation uh, that affects life very directly and is obviously seen by some people uh, as uh, totally 
nonsensical. The attempts some years ago to regulate the curvature of cucumbers and later of bananas or so is <laughs> obviously obviously something that did not help to uh, put up the uh, to increase the reputation of it. We've seen, uh, especially in the field of consumer protection, a lot of things like uh, where you ask yourself, are we really protected uh, against something uh, in that field? Uh, see the number of blue cheeses that have disappeared, which are considered somehow to be dangerous uh, by the European Union. But it's very theoretically. I haven't heard uh, about too many deaths caused by blue cheese. Uh, and uh, we do have there the Article 38 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union. And it simply says consumer protection means union policies shall ensure a high level of consumer protection. Uh, it seems mm -hmm. to be somehow a purpose in itself. Now, I, the point is, it's very probable, it's highly probable, even if the EU didn't regulate the things, you would have 28, when Britain is out, 27 uh, national regulations that are as terrible as this. And if you look at, even at local levels or so, you might governments sometimes come up with these ideas where you question common sense uh, the consent that is behind uh, that. I don't think that the EU is particularly more awful uh, in this respect. Maybe sometimes, uh, even if you have a nonsensical one, if you have a uniform one over the whole market, it may at least give some kind of uh, uh, security for producers or so. It's not good, but maybe uh, 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 less harmful. But it's uh, it's because it's more disattached from uh, uh, the peculiar individual cultural backgrounds of the individual countries. It's often seen as more nonsensical as it is. So it's a kind of public relations uh, uh, problem of the uh, European uh, Union, which I would think uh, it, it is certainly not as terrible as many Eurosceptics painted and certainly not at all a reason to abandon uh, the EU. Uh, but uh, the point is between nonsensical and uh, uh, sensible regulation is, does, is simply the question, does a regulation uh, help to encourage creative powers to solve certain problems? I mean, take, for instance, environmental regulation. You may have a regulation where you force upon cars a certain technology or to keep it cleaner, uh, which may mean that there are other technologies around which might function even better and are less expensive, which are then excluded. For instance, at the moment, the dernier cri, so to say, is have electric cars. In a few years, we might have cars that are as clean and more efficient running on hydrogen. But at the moment, every subsidy and every regulation goes into, let's have electric cars. Mm -hmm. uh, instead of having 
something uh, a more market-oriented system that simply leaves a certain freedom of choice of the technology you produce. I mean, even when you see a necessity, and climate change may be uh, one, where I'm not 100% sure whether uh, the hysteria at the moment is justified, but it may be one, but then you still have different types of dealing with it. You can simply introduce a plant economy to make the environment cleaner, but I have doubts whether this works because we have seen the environmental record of plant economies and uh, it wasn't really good. It was far worse than in, in capitalism. Or you can use market forces and then regulation might be necessary but can be done in an open way in a way that leaves uh, the force of progress and the force of creativity intact. This is fascinating. Um, and I would ha I'm going to ask you to come back to the podcast again because you just opened so many uh, paths for us to go to, especially with, uh, um, with climate change and protection of the environment. I would just add something on what you were talking about, how it is, it, how it is different culturally and locally and even country by country. I, I remember Boris Johnson with the Kipper and how he was complaining that the European Union wanted to be in plastic containers with this size and that. Does that make sense? And I was thinking to myself, well, that's maybe a nonsensical uh, regulation, but it was being used and very uh, cleverly so to make a, a populist argument. In this last minutes, I would like to um, go into one topic that is very dear to me, and that is political correctness. Because you do mention that too much political correctness and also protective measures can also be a problem regarding regulation. I would love you to expand a little more on that. Okay, if you start with language uh, uh, regulation, you may end up in some sort of uh, uh, censorship. I do, for instance, not believe that uh, hard quotas, uh, for whatever reason, are a good thing. You must have kind of free labor market uh, of some sort that could be uh, uh, harmful. And I think, uh, uh, especially on environmental matters, but sometimes even on gender matters, you may have uh, uh, policies that is very restrictive and that for some reason often turned out to be counterproductive. And uh, uh, that is that people were upset, uh, something you can't say this and you can't say this anymore, uh, isn't a good argument. If you need force to for, to your argument, it's always a good thing. I think arguments sometimes can stand on their own, and I think it would be much easier to win the argument if there isn't force behind it. So it connects very nicely to the other big freedom, which is freedom of expression and association. Well, wonderful. This was a, a fantastic conversation. I'm going to thank you so much for coming to the podcast, but tell our listeners where they can follow the work not only of the think tank that you had, but also that coalition of think tanks? Uh, 
I think you should simply Google economic freedom of the world. You will come to the uh, homepage of the Fraser Institute, uh, where I think even the data that I used are visible. And of course, you can visit uh, our Friedrich Naumann Foundation's uh, uh, website, freiheit.org, uh, which also has an English uh, version, an abridged, but an English version uh, 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 there, so that uh, you can inform yourself about our foundation's work. Okay, this links will be on the description of the podcast. I've been talking with Dr. Detmer During. Doctor, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Well, it's a great pleasure. Thank you very much. back and I would just like to remind you that now we are also on Apple podcast and Stitcher and please leave us a review give us a five-star rating help us promote our podcast and with that more liberal values and ideas and this is all for now but I'll be back soon with more podcasts until then let's keep making the world a better place The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any use that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>